0: You are listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 16th of October 2021 on Monocle 24. Hello, I am Marcus Hippie, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monaco on Saturday. Today, our regular guest Vincent MacAvini will join me to review the day's newspapers for us. Then our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tucker, will be back with his weekly column.
1: Over breakfast at Fisher's Restaurant this week, my art friend from Berlin told me about a Europe-wide shortage that really is a worry. Apparently, there's a scarcity of contemporary artworks.
0: More from Andrew Tuck a bit later.
2: We'll also be hearing from Andrew Muller. We learned, via the New Jersey Democrats' clearly fearsome opposition researchers, that 24 years ago, Governor Murphy's Republican opponent, Jack Chatterelli, then a borough council member in Somerset County, cast a vote in favour of an ordinance that prohibited public profanity. And we'll round up what we learned this week. That is all ahead
0: on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Up first, look at what's making news today. The fatal stabbing of British Conservative MP Sir David Amos has been declared as a terrorist incident. Sir David was stabbed yesterday during a surgery in Leon C. The Metropolitan Police said the early investigation has revealed a potential motivation linked to Islamist extremism. A 25-year-old man is in custody and has been arrested on suspicion of murder. The U.S. government has offered condolence payments to the family of 10 civilians who were mistakenly killed in a U.S. drone attack in Afghanistan in August. An aid worker and nine members of his family, including seven children, died in the strike. The Pentagon said it is also working to help surviving members of the family relocate to the U.S. Fully vaccinated visitors from 33 countries will be allowed to enter the United States from the 8th of November, the White House has announced. The move marks a significant relaxation of the country's coronavirus travel restrictions. The new rules will apply to the 26 Schengen nations and the UK, China, India, Brazil, Iran, South Africa and Ireland. And Virgin Galactic has postponed its first commercial flight due to safety concerns regarding the strength margins of materials used in the rocket plane. The company's shares dived as much as 20% yesterday after the announcement. The trip was scheduled for the third quarter of 2022, but will now be delayed until the fourth as the firm conducts repairs and upgrades. I am Markus Hippie and that's the news here on Monaco24. And now joining me for a look at today's papers, I'm joined by Vincent McAvini, reporter and Monocle 24, regular UK politics commentator. Welcome to the programme and good morning to you. Good morning. Um, let's start with the British papers. Obviously, there's one story that is that is dominating all the front pages. Now, the the killing of Sir David Amos, British MP. Yeah, it's in- incredibly sad. And,
3: and when the news broke uh, yesterday, I think, like many people in this country, Um, We just held our breaths and hoped because sadly we have been here before just five years ago. uh, Joe Cox, who was a Labour MP, was murdered by a far right neo-Nazi during the Brexit campaign. Um, And you know, to see this happen once again. Uh, so David Amos becomes the sixth MP murdered in the line of duty since the Second World War, which just feels like an extraordinary number uh, and, and, and a greater number have actually suffered physical violence and been stabbed just in the last of, uh, 20 years. Uh, I think he's now the fourth one to be attacked in this way. Um, and it's incredibly sad. And, you know, I've, this morning there is a lot of coverage out there one thing that struck me is that in his own writings, uh, he wrote a book uh, recently about life as an MP. He'd been an MP since 1983. He was very almost the father of the house, which is a term we have in Britain for the oldest uh, kind of male MP, but he he was about the fifth oldest going in there, but someone who had you know, been around and everyone knew. Uh, He wrote about what happened to Joe Cox, quote, it could happen to any one of us. He wrote about the creeping risks, checking the locks, taking care not to meet people alone, being alert to what could go wrong. But in Britain, one of the championing things of our democracy is that the social contract is that... You or I or any one of us can meet their local MP. Uh, They normally host surgeries at least once a week. And many MPs did what uh, Sir David did, which was you didn't have to book, you didn't have to turn up. Some of them now do that for security. Uh, you, you, You can just arrive,
0: wait in line and talk to the MP about anything you need. Exactly. And obviously, if if you look at the coverage, you can understand how shocking this has been for the whole country and also for MPs. I, I, there, there must be implications about many people wondering about their security when they're working in politics. Do you think something will have to change? Yeah, well, I mean, Priti Patel has already said she's instructed the
3: police to review security arrangements for MPs around the country. Several MPs have now said that they, you know, will not be doing this. Tobias Elwood, uh, an MP's ex-army, he, he was famously the one, um, PC Keith Palmer, that he triaged him when Parliament was attacked another incident a couple of years ago. Uh, and he said, you know, do it over Zoom. You can get more done. There are, though, issues then of constituents that might not have capacity to sadly do that but I think a lot of MPs will be considering what they're doing and, and there already is a climate I know from talking to MPs regularly of rising uh, abuse, of hate, harassment towards not just them but the staff that also have mm-hmm. to deal with the public um, and a lot of them have had you
0: know panic buttons and things installed in their homes and their offices. How how bad does it get? You happen to have some experience you've actually worked, you did work for an MP yeah. about 10 years ago.
3: Yeah, yeah I before I worked as a, as a reporter I worked for an MP 10 years ago in her Westminster and her constituency office uh, for about two years. And yeah, the you know we would get abusive phone calls. We would have a list of names of people that we knew if they were uh, contacting that they were harassers and not to really engage with them. Uh, there were people that we kind of knew to watch out for at constituency surgeries who might come along because really, you know, whilst it does attract people who have genuine issues and problems who you're trying to help often with things like, you know, accessing welfare or access, you know, their child has been booted out of school and they need some help. Or, you know, these are people who are really at the end of the tether. Um, And it also attracts a lot of, fringe people in society, people with either, you know, extreme views on either side or have become consumed by a particular cause or just have a very personal grievance, you do get a lot of kind of oddballs attracted to politics and all I know in the past 10 years talking to MPs and and the MP I did work for is that that has only escalated and the abuse that they get on social media has risen as well and so there are some MPs that have tactics for how they do this kind of thing in the wake of Joe Cox you know, they they try and in areas where they can kind of have as much control of the space as possible they will you know try and make sure that there's they're very close to an exit so they can get out if they need to but sadly in this circumstance uh you know this M- another mp ha- has died and it sounds like you know, that sadly, you know, there was nothing that could could be done for him. The vigour of this attack, he died, we believe, at the scene, despite an air ambulance being sent. And I think a lot of MPs will be considering. And and one, you know, Joe Cox's... Uh, who was murdered her sister has now actually taken over her constituency uh, as an MP uh, and she's spoken about the kind of trauma of seeing this all again and, and her partner yesterday asked her to stand
0: down because she just didn't think it was it was worth the risk mm. what about what about the places where these constituency surgeries take take place obviously they are right. At the, in the heart of, of the work of, of an MP, do you think that is something that should be thought about as well? Where these actually take place? Yeah, I mean it, it's a really tricky
3: problem because constituencies can be geographically massive. If you look at a British political map, you know there are there's when you look at like a, in Scotland and Wales, constituencies can be vast geographic areas. And so you you tend to on the Fridays when you do these constituency surgeries rotate around the constituency and go to different towns within it. So it's not just in your office. To try and make yourself as accessible to people, um, but there, you know, in smaller constituencies, it can always kind of be held at the, at the MP's offices and premises. There, I think there's a slight kind of problem if you're in, if you're in a smaller constituency. It's it's kind of easier to do, I guess, but the way that it works is we don't have like a, a dedicated municipal office in each constituency there's 650 mm-hmm. around the uk um that is kind of known as the local mp's office and it's handed between mps and you can install the security that you want and it can kind of be you know you can have everything set up as well what we have is a system where the mp themselves will rent office space in a constituency so if your mp changes wherever their office was it will suddenly be closed um and there'll be kind of all the costs of shutting down an office and and stuff and then a new office will be set up and the costs of all of all that kind of opening up and i think that actually creates a bit of a problem in that one it's quite expensive um, to do and i think there are lost costs there are also then you're paying public money into private rent um, and i think that perhaps there should be a discussion as to whether or not we build and it will be cheaper in the long run and safer for mps and better for constituents Offices in high street spaces around this country, which are the MP's office, which is handed off between MPs, but also have a facility where, you know, on uh, on a on a Friday when they're doing these surgeries, they have rooms that are as safe and secure as possible with panic alarms, Uh, and perhaps if you know if if you're keeping it in a high street. Um, you know, then a police officer is is notified and there's a police officer perhaps on standby uh, nearby for that period when you're doing it. I think that is perhaps the model that we might have to move
0: to. Mm, Perhaps. says you have quite a few newspapers in front of you. We could maybe look at the New York Times in just a moment, but shall we hear from Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, first? Here he is with his weekend column. There are stories in the British newspapers
1: of shortages in everything from fresh vegetables to butchers. But before you think that's good news for Mrs Piggy, it's not. They will be shot and disposed of if no sharp-knived men and women can be found. But over breakfast at Fisher's Restaurant this week, my art friend from Berlin told me about a Europe-wide shortage that really is a worry. Apparently, there's a scarcity of contemporary artworks worth over a million euros. During lockdown, the rich, fretting about their cash shrivelling away, seemingly piled into purchasing art as never before, and good galleries suddenly found their walls butt naked. I had a lot of these insane conversations this week because it's freeze week and the artists and gallerists and shoppers are back in London. And while it may be maddening in some respects, it's also a hoot. We'll head over to the Fair's Marquees in a minute, but first, another maddening thing LinkedIn. Our managing editor, Tom, is the gatekeeper when we're hiring new staff, and we are hiring with ambition foreign editor, fashion editor, business editor, chauffeurs. I jest, but maybe I'll ask. And like lots of fools before us, we're trying to use LinkedIn as one of the avenues to reach potential candidates but wow, is it rubbish. Or as Tom eloquently put it, poop. The problem is that the platform is full of people who ignore all the details about the qualifications required for a position, or the fact that you need to send a covering letter and just bounce you their CV. This week, a man who works as a zookeeper, small animals section, applied for the role of foreign editor. Now, while he may have a network of contacts from all around the world, the fact that most of them are covered in scales or fur makes me wonder whether they would be of much use to us. And yes, it's great that he speaks so many languages, but actually, and I really don't mean this harshly, the fact that these include raccoonese and chipmunklish does cause me to pause on sending him a contract. I really hadn't noticed any shortages in our local supermarkets or corner stores, but decided to survey the people around me at work Sophie, our fine editor of Confect, said that a chicken was suitably as rare as a hen's teeth where she resides in London. Although surely the editor of Confect should have some rare breed fancy feathered delights living in her garden. Tom, yes, Poop Tom, added that he had struggled to get the olives that he likes. Um, I have a feeling that the folks at Monocle should just about pull through this crisis. Back at freeze. I spoke to people about how the opening day was going. Bonkers, said an old acquaintance, before he ran off to retrieve another artwork for an impatient client. Another had just sold a work for £100,000 to a woman who had had her interior decorator on FaceTime to ensure that her art was not only a good investment, but would also match the colour scheme in her townhouse. I love observing this upper echelon of private collectors. Surgeoned faces, immaculate blowout hair, a swagger that comes from years of making entrances. Monocle 24, our radio outfit, celebrates its 10th anniversary this week. And on Thursday, we held a media conference in London to mark the moment. Clarissa Ward, the chief international correspondent at CNN, spoke about her work, confronting the man accused of poisoning Alexei Navalny, working in Afghanistan among the Taliban. and navigating your emotions, in the end, to be parked, and the essence of your job, to shine a light, to bear witness. There was something magnetic about her. You wanted to hear her words. I was mesmerized. Freeze shopping. I know that you should be a bit more highbrow than this, but it's also good to play a version of that TV show, Supermarket Sweep, and imagine what you would put in your basket and have in your home if your family had also plundered some wealth at some point. I would like any of the William Eggleston prints on sale, or perhaps one of Deborah Roberts' extraordinary collage works that unpack the images we hold of black girls. And while we may need a crane more than a trolley, Keith Coventry's Big Junk One, a huge swoosh of blue and yellow across a white canvas on sale at Pace would be nice too, although it's sadly not going to get up the stairs very easily. There was also some light moments at our media conference. Peter York, author, market diviner, social commentator, was talking about Condé Nast and their replacing of editors with heads of content. He was wonderfully dismissive. We all know that content is just another word for slurry, he purred. And the other moment of amusement was when Clubhouse was mentioned. Just weeks ago, heralded as the future of social media, and now an audience just laughed at its very name. It was the sort of laugh you might let out on finding a photograph of yourself sporting a yellow rah-rah skirt. I'm wondering what the hell you were thinking when you wore that. The tittering made me feel very happy that radio has been our big digital play. But that's enough for this week. I have an imminent appointment with a zookeeper, small animals department. Well, come on, it's worth a try.
0: That was Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, with his Weekend column. You are listening to Monocle on Saturday. I am Markus Hippi, and I'm joined in the studio by our regular contributor, Vincent McAvini. We continue with more newspapers now, Vinny. Shall we look at the New York Times? Yes.
3: Yeah. Two stories uh, really stood out for me uh, here this morning, both from uh, Washington DC. The first one is uh, Democrats bet temporary benefits will last. And it starts with this really interesting quote from Mitt Romney, who is kind of, you know, a bit of a, you know, someone who ran for president, someone who is a bit more centrist in the kind of Republican Party, was a bit of an anti-Trumper. But he's talking about the kind of uh, part of the package that Biden is trying to get past is to help Uh, working families, to help parents uh, and to boost education. And Mitt Romney says, uh, don't be fooled. Democrats' plans for free childcare and universal pre-K expire in a handful of years. They aren't permanent. Uh, You know, we don't want to, uh, but Democrats don't want these to disappear. Mm -hmm. And it's a bit like well, don't threaten me with a good time. Like, who is going to believe that that is a bad thing? I mean, you're from the country that has, you know, this renowned global leader in education. Uh, America is absolutely tumbling down the education league tables of the world. And it's like, Han, how is this a bad thing? I that know. you're going to help... Working families, the people that you're there to 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 be there for, to help them, you know, get back to one, to get back to work in the economy easier, mm-hmm. to two, create employment by bringing down the costs and expanding childcare for young people, three, to improve their early years education. Where is the downside? And it's just this, you know, Republican thing of of blocking things which they know, as happened with, you know, Universal Healthcare, the Affordable Care Act a decade ago, that are the right thing to do, but their vested corporate interests don't want. And they know that when people see the reality of it, a bit like the American healthcare, you remember the death panel talk, the Tea Party that sprang up, Sarah Palin, once people saw it as not this evil socialist program, but a kind of tenant of a modern working democracy
0: that makes life better for everyone, they'll see through so much else that they're demonising. We're talking about quality of life. Um, Just a funny anecdote I heard recently from my Finnish friend over the summer. She was on the phone with an American partner of their business. And this partner from the US was wondering, so my friend's friend, a colleague had just started her five-week summer holiday and the American had been in touch with her and just discovered that. And she was trying to figure out if my friend was going to start another five-week holiday. And my friend said, it's only going to be three weeks this time around. And she was asking from the American how long, if she's had any holidays. And the answer was that no, she's not going to take any holidays soon because she just had a two-week maternity leave.
2: Yeah.
3: I mean, and it's—it's. It's I previously worked for a U.S. broadcaster where I know that the the standard days of holiday was 12 a year, and it, some people don't use them all, which I just think is ridiculous. Uh, they take the less, you know, the least holiday of of any OECD country, and but it's also, yeah, as you say, you know, the fact that there really is no maternity uh, leave, like, don't even think about paternity leave, uh, and you know, I knew people that worked at that organization who had specifically move to the UK you know love the US but move to Europe and and the base of this operation the broadcaster was in the UK um at the time they wanted to have a family because Mm. they knew they would get British holidays, they would get British maternity rights, they would get British paternity rights, that the childcare costs would be better. And then eventually, you know, they'd head back to the States when the kid was eight or nine, but they knew that it was a lot better life to be here for those early years. And, you know, the UK is not
0: even the leader in Europe on Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. Exactly. Shall we continue with your your other story from the New York Times? Because I know on the same page, as a matter of fact, there is something else as well. Yeah, this is interesting that
3: the January the 6th uh, inquiry is stepping up uh, by Congress. So This is a bipartisan uh, select committee. It's got Liz Cheney on it, but it is kind of uh, trying... The Republicans who are still aligned with Trump are trying to discredit it. But it really, you know, unless... The Democrats kind of really, and 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 not just Democrats. Actually, the the U.S. justice system really goes after you know a lot of the people that were on the ground that were filmed. A lot of them have been tracked down, arrested, or are now facing court. They've all claimed you know moments of madness and that they you know were were radicalized by Fox News and they believe the president. But a lot of the instigators behind the scenes uh, are still you know, not properly being brought to justice. And one of those uh, is uh, Steve Bannon, who we all kind of remember as this uh, far-right kind of, he thinks he's a Scottish Bengali figure behind Trump. He worked in the White House for a bit and then left. He tried to come to Europe and, and tried to kind of uh, play with European parliamentary elections and uh, pretty much utterly failed in that. But he, uh, his role is being investigated and in what happened on January 6th to try and stop the count. But he is resisting a subpoena, uh, reportedly, from the committee to appear before it and they are if he doesn't reply this week are going to find him in contempt and then he will face the legal repercussions of that but it is because Donald Trump has reportedly not uh, as instructed his former aides not to engage with the process uh he is trying to invoke some kinds of exec- executive privilege over documents per- ta- and records pertaining to that day which doesn't seemingly exist uh, and it is a bit of a scary time because you are i think starting to see that you know, Trump is very much on course to run again, but also you know, not just the big lie, which is something dictators around the world do, but specifically with the January the sixth, we saw that he recorded a video for the family of, I think it's Ashley Babbitt mm-hmm. uh, is her name, who was one of the women uh, killed on January the 6th, who was in his camp, who was trying to break into the room where uh, Congress uh, congressmen were sheltering. Uh, and she was, I think, shot uh, by law enforcement. And he was claiming that that was the injustice, that she was shot, that it needed to be properly investigated, that she was some kind of American patriot. And I think it is pretty dangerous now that that spin is starting
0: to, to take hold mm. in his in his encounter campman and approach to get re-elected. I think it's interesting, as, as you mentioned, it, it looks like Donald Trump may well run again. Do you think, it's quite refreshing nowadays, because you hear less from Donald Trump, partly also because he's not that visible on social media, he's mm. not on Twitter, for example. Do you think that's going to hinder his chances of actually getting re-elected? Do you know what, I'm slightly worried by that in a way. In in It's a nice relief
3: not to have the tweets all the time, but I think as well, I don't want him to develop on his side of politics an Adele-like quality, Mm -hmm. where, because he's like disappearing, it actually means that when he comes back fully, he comes back harder and bigger because they've maybe missed it. And you're not seeing that constant drip. I think we're even starting to see on some Republican side them being a bit like, was he so bad, you know, the day when you, mm. you know, and and it was a four years of nonstop week in, week out crises. Um, and I feel like actually without those tweets every day as, an, you know, as kind of distracting and, and agenda setting as they were, does it actually help him in a way that the scrutiny that he's getting is, is, is less because actually it's only his performances at these big rallies. Uh, and then there is the flip of, you know, so say, you know say when he if he did get the nomination again well the rules are unclear about what will happen with his social media whether he'll get out of you know facebook prison whether he'll get out of a twitter jail all these kind of things as to whether or not he then the social media giants say well he's the candidate so we have to put him back on and then it has actually a bigger impact because his brand hasn't you know declined even further in say this year next year Um, by being on social media and kind of, you know, ranting on, whether actually when this quiet time helps him and that when Mm. he comes back, it actually makes him bigger.
0: Uh Uh-oh. Vincent, let's continue with a story or two in just a moment, but let's now first hear from Monaco's contributing editor, Andrew Muller. Here is his take on what the past seven days have taught us.
2: We learned this week that New Jersey gonna... New Jersey. We learned that the state is in the final throes of a gubernatorial election and that the incumbent, Governor Phil Murphy of the Democratic Party, is in no mood to play nice. As a side note, we also learned what a deeply satisfying word gubernatorial is to say. Come on, give it a try. Gubernatorial. Gubernatorial. Gubernatorial.
0: Gubernatorial. Yeah. Gubernatorial. That's a
2: good word. Yeah. I'll use that, yeah. As soon as possible gubernatorial. Could we also take a moment to appreciate the choice of soundtrack to this bit, which works on at least two levels, i.e. it's Bruce Springsteen from New Jersey, as he may have mentioned once or several thousand times, plus it's born to run. And run, of course, can mean to flee, as in the original context, or campaign for office. See? Anyway, we learned, via the New Jersey Democrats' clearly fearsome opposition researchers, that 24 years ago, Governor Murphy's Republican opponent, Jack Chatterelli, then a borough council member in Somerset County, cast a vote in favour of an ordinance that prohibited public profanity. Obviously, seeking to ban New Jerseyans from swearing is like preventing the Swiss from yodelling? Could someone please prevent the Swiss from yodeling? Ideally by dropping a piano. Obliged. And we learned that the discovery of this skeleton in the cupboard of Jack Chattarelli had inspired Governor Murphy's team to create what is, beyond much doubt, the greatest campaign ad ever made. We are not making this up. This is a real thing. Do you know who this guy is?
0: No clue. No.
3: Nope. Uh-uh. That's Jack Cittarelli, the GOP candidate for governor. He once led an effort to ban swearing. You're shitting me.
2: <laughs> he did what? No f- way.
0: What an f- What the f-? Oh, Aw, that's kind of nice. Really? F- no. This is
3: fing
2: New Jersey. We can't let that f- win. We learned, however, that this has not been an altogether glorious week for... Actually, can we have the anguished grinding gear change clip? <laughs> for the communications of entities associated with various branches of the. US government. There it is. It's
0: an AD, you can the seven seas. It's an AD,
2: because we learned that the official Facebook page of the U.S. Navy's Arleigh Burke-class destroyer USS Kid had been hijacked for some days by a prankster who was using it to live stream their endeavours playing classic old-school strategy game Age of Empires, along with captions including, not unreasonably, ha 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 ha, that was a direct quote. We more recently learned, because we checked, that this mutiny seems to have been quelled and that the USS Kids Facebook page has reverted to more standard fare. We then learned that the US Navy was seeking to forestall fears that an entire ship could be similarly commandeered and was blaming a social media manager who forgot to log out of the kids account and into their personal one. It would seem somehow fitting if World War III started like this, however. (laughs) Maestro, some generic Japanese music. We learned of the beginnings of an international stramash for which we are presently nurturing great hopes it could not yet be characterized as an actual diplomatic spat as none of the pertinent governments have piled in thus far but media in at least two of the jurisdictions concerned are busying themselves gathering in a circle and chanting fight 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 at issue is a seafood curry served by a restaurant in Okinashima in Japan's Shimane Prefecture. Perched in the sauce are two rice patties, one of which has a little Japanese flag in. Aww. But wait! The rice patties are shaped like what Japan calls Takashima, a pair of unprepossessing islets in the Sea of Japan, but which South and North Korea, in a rare point of agreement, called Dokdo, and here, we learned, is the problem. South Korea administers Dokdo slash Takashima, currently populated by one civilian, a few coastguards and a cohort of lighthouse keepers, but Japan claims it. As a minor point of historical interest, the disputed things are also known as the Liancourt Rocks, after a French whaling ship which pranged into them in 1849. Anyway, we learned that Korean media on both sides of the DMZ was determined to make a thing of this. One South Korean paper scaring up a professor willing to call it a typical cheap trick... Not that kind, though that is from Live at Budokan, cleverly in keeping with the Japan theme. While one North Korean outlet cranked up the contumely to giddying levels, as will now be rendered by Monocle 24's culinary outrage desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It is a specialty created from Japan's ingrained ambition to capture the territory
3: and exercise militarism. The idea is to turn dokdo into rice
2: and eat it in one go. We cannot help but be appalled by the meanness unique to this island nation. Are you going to take that sitting down, Japan? Are you? Fight! 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 For Monocle 24,
0: I'm Andrew Thanks to Andrew Muller for that and more from Andrew next week on Saturday again. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. We're joined by Vincent McAvini in the studio to continue with the day's newspapers. V- v- Vinny, there there's so many space stories going on now. I was also reading a news story, space story, in the news headlines about Virgin Galactic's troubles with its plans for the first commercial flight. But there are many other stories on today's papers too.
3: Yeah, that's right. It's the week that we saw the eldest uh, space traveller, and that was 90-year-old William Shatner, who... You know, it was impressive going to space. He also went up six flights of stairs to get to the rocket hatch, which for a 90-year-old is pretty good. Impressive. Um, and he's the first actor to go into space. And it was really interesting to watch. You know, it is he went on the Blue Origin uh, rocket ship uh, by Jeff Bezos, who was the Amazon founder. He did this kind of very, you know, quick 11-minute up-and-down trip where they get a couple of minutes weightlessness in space. But what was interesting was, you know, obviously... He giant PR coup for for Blue Origin because once you know it's the second launch whereas you know no one was gonna you know you pay attention to the first one second one not so much but they did people tuned in because of it and you know his legacy playing Captain James T Kirk on on Star Trek which you know scientists around the world say kind of inspired that show inspired them and, and made them want to go into space it is remarkable. He first played that character 55 years ago you think about the infancy of the of the space program then and what he was projecting and so many of the technologies in that show are now part of our day-to-day lives and it shows how much of an impact it had but it was really interesting to see the impact it had on him because when he came down he was you know he was essentially crying in the interview and he was like i just didn't expect to feel these emotions about Mm -hmm. how extraordinary it was to you know the thing that many people that go to space say i love interviewing astronauts i've interviewed a couple um before tim Peake and, and chris haddington and, and they talk about you know it changes your perception forever the moment you cross the carmen line and you're in space and it's like the universe and on your you know on one side and earth on the other and you're really looking down and it was it was touching to see but it did actually then also play into some comments made by prince william who tomorrow night will do the inaugural Earthshot Prize. And so that's the takeoff of, of, you know, Kennedy's famous moonshots. The Earthshot Prize is something he's launched, which is a prize for technologies to uh, win funding uh, that are to combat climate change. And I think this is such a massive pivot in the royal family in the UK here, because yeah, for years, we've known Prince Charles, you know, kind of before it was cool was on about environmental causes. Mm -hmm. Prince William now very much taking this up and and he's doing this big awards. But he sat down for an interview with a a friend of mine, Adam Fleming at the BBC for a podcast, where he actually went out of his way to criticise the the billionaire space race and say, you know, I wish that these great minds and all this investment was being put into solving problems here on Earth, um, instead of, you know, space tourism. and. Yeah, I think he does have a point about this. It doesn't look that great after the 18 months that we've been into where inequality has become more and more entrenched. Amazon doesn't have a good record when it comes to the rights of its workers and how it treats them. Uh, And, and, you know, they're doing the space tourism. The flip side is, Prince William, uh, that... um, you know, I was looking at a list of all the things this week that came from the space program, including things like microwaves, memory foam, uh, prosthetic limbs, computers, technology, phone technology, GPS. All of these things actually came from in the wake of developing the space program. It has this massive catalyzing effect across science uh, for innovation. So there are some valid points that he made, but criticisms there. But yeah, it is, it is fascinating now to see the kind of the birth of it. And oh, a funny story I heard as well uh-huh. was... was just one last thing on this, was that apparently... Virgin Galactic had wanted William Shatner to go up, but Richard Branson was so cheap that he expected Shatner, who's like notoriously a bit stingy with his mm-hmm. money, uh, to pay for his own trip. So really? Bezos gave him it for free and that's why
0: he did that trip. It's it's interesting, there's so, many, there's so much excitement about space at the moment. Let's also remember that in this country, Prime Minister Boris Johnson was already promising that Britain will be launching rockets next year. I don't really know what's going to be happening with that. That may be just for his way of distracting us from yeah, other issues facing this country at the moment. Yeah, I think... Uh, I think yeah any shiny object you can throw at to distract <laughs> from the
3: crisis is is kind of needed from Downing Street at the moment. Yeah I mean the UK is building this spaceport um in like furthest north Scotland and you know my i've, I've you know been to uh, nasa a couple of times in florida and and you know you think about the places that you launch rocket from from and they are you know places like florida texas kazakhstan where you're kind of you know in deserts or whatever it's it's quite dry it's quite you know tropical climates i can't think of you know, launching, you know, and and in those places, rockets are often called off for weather reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, launching in Britain with our weather and launching then on top of that in
0: northern Scotland.
3: <laughs> you know, <laughs> I get that it, you're wanting it away from population centres in case something goes wrong, but I just think the weather will never play well with that one.
0: In about 10, 15 years when it may get but are you going to be queuing to get into space yourself? Would you do that? Yeah, I mean I'd, I'd
3: absolutely love to do it. I don't think there's anyone in their heart of hearts would say turn down the offer of a trip to space but you know whether or not it's right that this becomes a giant industry given the environmental impacts but given I think you know it's a really interesting time I've been doing a lot of business correspondent work this week actually and, and looking kind of across the world and you know we're building up to COP now which is only a couple of weeks away You know, you look at the problems with the energy markets in in oil and gas around the world and this pinch that's happening and the knock-on effects. uh, And the fact is that those fossil fuels... You know, we all remember that. I remember vividly that page... In the science textbook when I was at school, that you know projected the times of like coal runs out in mm-hmm. you know whatever it was twenty fifty five, gas reserves globally run out in twenty sixty, whatever those times are. We all know that those are running out, and we're seeing at the moment you know problems with the with the supply, which may or not be a little bit contrived. I think by the companies uh, to kind of change the prices or to kind of put a pressure on COP as well. I think, um, but you know there are huge problems that we need to solve here on Earth, and there is a question as you know, particularly I think. When it comes to, you know, you named your country, you named your company Amazon. It's now one of the biggest companies in the entire world. It's made insane profits during the pandemic. Uh, and yet the Amazon rainforest that it's named after is disappearing at a, an alarming rate under mm-hmm. a, you know, pretty right um uh, guy in uh, leading Brazil who doesn't believe in climate change, and I think that those issues. I think Prince William has a point that those issues are pretty critical in the next
0: few decades. Agreed, Vincent. Thank you very much for joining us this week, and it was lovely to, to have you on. Have a great rest of the weekend, and see you soon. Thank and you. that's all for today's edition of Monaco on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer Nora Huel. I am Marcus Hippi. Monaco on Saturday returns next week. Thanks for listening.